This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Missanelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Mike Missanelli podcast brought to us by Bet Rivers. In a little bit, I'll tell you how I did on my weekend plays on Bet Rivers. It is Monday, October 2nd, and it is the day after the Eagles go 4-0. And uh, I don't know if everybody's happy about that, but they're 4-0. They win 34-31 over the surprisingly spunky Washington Commanders. Um, winning overtime with a field goal. And there's so much to unpack in this game. The, the Eagles won the game, all right? They are 4-0, and uh, that's pretty good. Uh, and they look like they're on their way to a 6-0 and start if we could push ahead. And maybe Miami's not as good as we think, so that could be 7-0. and I, I don't know where this season's going to go, but we'll take it one week at a time. Uh, Washington State surprisingly close. This line was 8, and um, they covered. Uh, so congratulations to them. They showed a different profile, certainly, than they did last week when they got hammered uh, by the Bills. And uh, the, the quarterback, Sam Howell. I uh, surprised a lot of people, uh, no turnovers in this game. He seemed to manage the game pretty well. He seemed to learn by getting the ball out of his hands quickly. Uh, and it was a pesky effort by that. So uh, let's, let's uh, start with the dramatic conclusion and then we'll go backwards a little bit. Uh, the Eagles looked like they were going to win this game uh, on their last possession of regulation. And uh, if you recall, on that last possession, they were eating up clock, and I assume they were going to eat up enough clock to get the game-winning field goal, which is money with Jake Elliott. As long as they got within, I don't know, 50 yards, basically that would have been the game in regulation. So let's let's recount what happens here. Um, Covey gets a decent punt return. There's 320 left in the game, so they take over at the 42-yard line. Within that series, there's a big third down throw to Zacchaeus over the middle. Keeps the drive going. They're now at the Washington 34. I mean, that's that's money time for, for Jake Elliott because at that point, uh, that is a 51-yard field goal. Well, I guess they want to get a little closer. So they get a pass to A.J. Brown for another first down, and, um, and then Swift gets to the 28. It's a 45-yard field goal at this point. The clock is running. Now, this is a, where, where I, I don't know whether this is Jalen Hurts being a young quarterback, whether he's not being instructed by his coaching staff, but it seems to me that you can run out this clock and win the game with a field goal. So, uh, and that's really uh, step A to win the game, right? If you're a really good team, you know you got them and uh, the field goal's not going to miss. So uh, you do that. But what Jalen Hurts does, he comes up to the line of scrimmage and he sees A.J. Brown in single coverage. Now, normally at that course of a game, single coverage or like or in an earlier course of the game, single coverage, you want to hit him for a touchdown. You know he's going to beat single coverage. And but so what Hurts does is he checks at the line of scrimmage and he hits AJ Brown for the touchdown. Now, at first blush, that looks really good. All right, the Eagles scored a touchdown. However, 
They leave a minute and 43 seconds on the clock at that point. And uh, listen, I, I'm looking at the Washington Commanders going, okay, they're not a great team. Can we just assume that the Eagles defense is going to overpower them and they're not going to be able to get the ball down the field in time to score a touchdown to tie the game? That's conventional thinking, right? But on this game, the Washington Commanders were moving the football against the Eagles. In fact, they scored on their first drive, two touchdowns in their first two drives of the game. They scored on three of their first four. So this was a different Commanders team in the offense. And and what happens here is that uh, A.J. Brown happens. Um, It's 31 to 24. There's a minute 43 left on the clock. And A.J. Brown gets a taunting penalty by dropping the football in the lap of a defender who tried to check him on that play. That's stupid football. But this is A.J. Brown. This is what you got to put up with with a diva wide receiver. And, uh, you know, frankly, he's been causing a couple problems at this point. So not thinking clearly, veteran receiver, 15 yards. Is that going to be enough to spur the commanders to come down the field? Well, now you got to kick off 15 yards behind where you normally kick off. So Washington gets the uh, the kickoff return at the 36-yard line. Now, that's 11 more yards than they would have gotten had Elliott kicked it out of the end zone from his normal kicking spot. And so at 36, you go, okay, well, that's still a long way to go for them to score a touchdown. Um, are you kidding me? They get the ball down the field rapidly, and the last pay of regulation, Hal hits Jahan Dotson for a 10-yard TD. Shocking. Last play of the game, clock runs out. Now they need an extra point to tie or a two-point conversion to win. Now, it used to be Riverboat Ron, right? Ron Rivera, the head coach of the Washington Commanders, Riverboat Ron. Uh, Would he go for two there with the momentum behind him to try to win the game or lose the game with one play? Now, you rarely see this in the NFL. I know this happened with Brian Dable last year where he went for the two to take the lead. There was still like a minute and a half left on that clock when he did that. Last play of the game, either you get it or you don't. And I'm always, I'm conservative when it comes to this. Uh, I think that you can't lose the game with one play. You can't risk losing the game with one play. The risk reward in that situation, I would never go for two. I would not want to come away with that with a loss if I don't make the two-point conversion and have my fan base think I'm an idiot. Now, in Ron Rivera's case, the veteran coach, maybe he could have got away with that. Maybe he could sell his fan base. Hey, listen, we're a young team. We're growing. We're not going to win anything this year anyway. So let's steal one here at Lincoln Financial Field. Well, instead he goes conventional, and he kicks the extra point. Now, the commanders get an advantage in this game where they win the toss, and uh, they've got the first possession in overtime. Uh, and here's where the chickens come home to roost to uh, – paraphrase a, a quote that was made famous by Malcolm X. Um, they go three and out. So now the Eagles are going to get the ball back with great field position. And they do just enough to get the ball into Jake Elliott's range. Now, during this series, they, they were able to get a tush push, as it's now being called here uh, around the NFL or in Philadelphia, the brotherly shove. And on that tush push, Zacchaeus, the wide receiver, literally picked up Jalen Hurts and carried him uh, across the first down mark. So they get uh, the first down at the 50-yard line to keep the drive going. And then they uh, they inch closer. They, they needed a nine-yard pass to Devontae Smith to overcome an intentional grounding by Hurts where he went back on a play, didn't see anybody, and, and launched it 
to the end zone. There was no receiver within 20 yards of that because A.J. Brown had kind of cut off his route and went out towards the sideline. So the question is, is that an intentional ground? Whether it was or not, they called it, and they needed another nine-yard pass to get in position for Elliott to kick the field goal. So they win the game 34-31, to another survival. Uh, and fans are looking at this like, well, how good are they? And listen, i, I got to be honest with you. A 4-0 start in the NFL is pretty damn good. Uh, and if you want to look at their schedule and say, well, they didn't really pay anybody that tested them, well, that's fine and dandy. But it's hard to win in the NFL. You see this. I thought the Eagles were a team that were kind of impervious to falling off a, a, a ledge and losing to a mediocre team. And, uh, you know, listen, they survived in this game, but they didn't lose the game to a mediocre team. And that's the test of a good team because you see teams all over the NFL. They look great one week. Look at Miami. I mean, they got hammered on Sunday uh, to a pretty good team. But you see teams all around the NFL lose when they're expected to win. And, and it takes a, a, a special kind of team to get past those, those little hurdles because sometimes you don't play your, your best football and, and the other team exceeds their, their expectations, which is what Washington did in this particular game. So I can't complain about them being 4-0. And I know we're so spoiled here in Philadelphia that people are saying, well, they're not dominating. I don't care if they're dominating. All they need to do is win some games and get into a position where they get that number one seed in the conference and then worry about the playoffs from that point on. Now they got a long way to go before they get there, but they got two winnable games coming up with the Rams out there, which might be a test depending on, you know, you, you saw how the commanders play them. The Rams are probably going to play them tough. I don't expect to lose that game. And now you have the Jets, and all of a sudden they, they're awakened with what they did last night with Zach Wilson a whole bit. But I don't think the Eagles lose either of those games. Then it comes to Miami here in Philadelphia. So uh, then there's Washington, and then there's Dallas. So, you know, the schedule after Dallas with that gauntlet of really good teams are going to play, going to define the Eagles' season. But let's uh, let's look back uh, at, at this game and some, some uh, little tidbits here. Uh, let, let's first of all look at the decision to check at the line of scrimmage, which we mentioned a little earlier. Now, um, I, I don't know if you can criticize your quarterback for making that kind of a play because he got a touchdown out of it. But in the future, it is possible that the offensive coaches should sit him down and go, listen, man, I, I understand that your instincts tell you to do that. But in this case, you got to use the NFL uh, uh, dialect and, and intelligentsia to get past that original thought, which is, yeah, maybe the football play is me recognizing single coverage, making the check, getting a touchdown out of it. But overcoming that is the premise that all I have to do is control the football here, run out the clock, and have my field goal kicker win it. So that's point A. Uh, point B is that uh, A.J. Brown's a pain in the ass. I mean, he, he really is. It, it's starting to bother me a little bit. Uh, you know, these wide receivers – we loved T.O. when he was here. It was a pain in the ass. But, but the Eagles at that point were yearning to win something. And so we put up with T.O. And his personality kind of won us over. Now, A.J. Brown is now pushing the envelope a, a little bit. Now, he, he, we, we knew he was a diva. But coming in here, rest friends with Hurts, the whole bit, we thought he calmed down a little bit. It's inexcusable some of the things that he's done. The argument on the sidelines, the defying the NFL with the shoes, uh, the, the, dropping the taunting uh, uh, a player after he scores a touchdown, not thinking, not making the football play, using his football knowledge to say, I can't do something stupid like that here. He's a pain in the butt. And I just hope it doesn't blow up on the Eagles. Okay. Uh, some quick hits uh, on this game as we look back. Uh, number one, where in the hell did Sam Howell come from? 
I mean, he was destroyed last week by the Bills. Nine sacks, 15 quarterback hits. I got to give the Washington offensive staff a lot of credit in one week of practice, uh, settling him down and say, hey, dude, listen, uh, we got to get rid of the ball quick here, especially against this team right here. So uh, there's, there's, there's no holding the ball in the pocket. You can't risk getting sacked by this team. You can't risk getting hit by this team. Get the ball out of your hands quick, and if you can't, run. And that's what he did. He showed great mobility. So uh, I, I don't know if he's a good quarterback or not, but I, I thought before this game that he stunk, and he showed me a little something. So maybe they do have a quarterback down there in Washington. Uh, all right, number two. The Eagles sometimes have very curious offensive game plans. Now, you look at this game, Washington came into this game 22nd in the league against the rush, 27th in the league in giving up yards per rush. Well, the Eagles rushed the heck out of the ball last week. They had 40 rushes and 37 passes with DeAndre Swift carrying the load. And their game plan to come out in this game was to throw, which I don't understand. And even when they gave the, the, the ball to DeAndre Swift early in the game and he had some success, they kind of went away from him. They didn't give him the ball for a while. In fact, they had him on the sidelines and they had Kenneth Gainwell in there. Now, I know they're trying to protect DeAndre Swift, who has a history of injuries. But in this particular situation, I, 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 you can't just go away from the guy. You want to limit him to 15, 16 carries a game. I get it. You want to be judicious that way. But the offensive game plan is kind of weird, and they got away with it. Uh, all right. Uh, Terrell Edmonds was horrible. They, they have some safety problems here. Blankenship has been playing very well. Terrell Edmonds is horrible. He had a couple really costly penalties, uh, a, a couple really bad reads on plays. So um, that safety position remains problematic for the Eagles. They are thin back there. Blankenship has been reliable. They haven't had anybody else that they can pair with him to be as reliable. Uh, uh, conversely, they got a great game from their linebackers. Now, the linebackers have kind of come out of nowhere here. Zach Cunningham, Nicholas Morrow, they, they, they became starters really by accident. Kobe Dean goes out, and he's on the shelf for about four weeks now. Um, and and it, so they throw in these guys that have been uh, kicked around the league, and suddenly they're making some plays. Now, that's being helped by the Eagles' defensive line. Their tackles are stout. And so when you see linebackers making a lot of tackles, and Cunningham and Morrow combined for 24 tackles in this game, and Morrow had three sacks, that means your guys up front are occupying offensive linemen, allowing your linebackers to make plays. So that's a, that's a good part of what the Eagles are doing. And maybe the Eagles figured that out, that their defensive line was going to be so stout they could get away with uh, substandard linebackers who now look like overachievers. All right, that's all good. Uh, let's get to the number five, the tush-push conspiracy. And I've been talking to a lot of people in Philadelphia who are now convinced because this has been a national obsession that the Eagles are utilizing this tush-push play at fourth and one, the quarterback sneak with Hurts with about 700 pounds of beef behind him, pushing him over the line of scrimmage. A lot of teams try to do it. They're not as successful as the Eagles. I, I don't know why the Eagles have perfected this. However, I know it's being complained about a lot in the league and by specific NFL coaches as well. So when those guys speak, the league goes, okay, maybe there's an unfair advantage here. We don't want to be taking this noise every week. And so the conspiracy theory currently going on in Philadelphia is that the officials will now take it in their own hands to limit the tush-push. And if you watched the game yesterday, you saw that there was a weird offensive line offside call. The offensive linemen, you see false starts, but offsides 
very unusual. And they got Landon Dickerson for lining up offsides. When, if you look at the replay, the Washington uh, defensive tackles helmet was kind of also over the line of scrimmage. They got the Eagles on that. Now, is that a conspiracy? Is that the, the, the league's way of limiting the effectiveness on this? Because they're watching now for Eagle offensive linemen to be over the, the nose of that football. We shall see in future weeks. But you've seen it before in other sports where the league mandates their officials to look at this a little closer and call this on this team because they're getting away with this. And I just uh, wonder if that's going on in the NFL now with the Eagles and their push-push or their brotherly shove. Uh, Jalen Hurts keeps chugging along. Great numbers in the game. His rating was 119.9, I think. Uh, he's now 22-1 and when he starts a game for the Eagles. Now, there are games when, when and you look at him, and you, the criticism of this year is not as sharp as he was last year. And, and probably that's true. And the other criticism is he looks a little slower getting out of the pocket. Now, that might be true, too. It also may be that they've conditioned him to be so cautious that when he comes out, he comes out gingerly a little bit instead of going full bore what he did last year when he won his scrambles. But in any event, 22-1 is pretty damn good. So what he's done is establish himself as a guy who can win. And, and I'll, I'll take that. And, you know, his numbers are going to be his numbers. His, he's not going to have bad numbers. He's not ever going to be a game manager. He's going to be a dynamic player. And he made some great throws to A.J. Brown yesterday and to Devontae uh, Smith, who also helped him out with a couple great catches. Uh, so uh, Jalen Hurts is still money for, for my money. And 22-1 uh, uh, and one as a starter is just ridiculous. Uh, okay. The Eagles punt returning team. Britton Covey has come out of nowhere. Interesting story this week that Britton Covey is very influential in the locker room. A story that his grandfather is an inspirational author and has a, an inspirational book out there that is uh, pretty much a Bible for those looking for inspirational uh, books. I didn't know this about Britton Covey. Of course, he's out of BYU uh, or, uh, excuse me, Utah, but he's a Mormon. He went on a Mormon mission. And apparently he has some influence in the Eagles locker room because they listen to his wisdom which is all good. Now, I don't really care much about his wisdom. I care about him returning punts. And for the first time, he broke through with an average of about the 12-plus yards, 12 to 14-plus yards uh, returning punts. That's a, a lot better than he's done. And so maybe he's finally figured it out uh, with his punt returns. And like The average punt return in the NFL is probably like uh, 8 to 12. He's exceeded that in his game. So that now becomes less of a worry for fans who wanted to get Britton Covey out of town. So he, he's at least quelled that discussion for right now. Uh, okay, the Eagles defense. People have a little bit of a problem with what they saw on Sunday. Uh, the problem is that Washington got down the field and scored touchdowns in their first two drives. Uh, but it, I think it was the scheme that they had problems with. When the Eagles are using a five-man front, which they've been using a lot, they have not connected that with the subsequent coverage. In other words, the five-man front putting pressure on the quarterback, corner, the cornerbacks, especially Darius Slay, are playing off the receiver. Now, I do a show with Seth Joyner, an Eagles postgame show, very wise when it comes to defensive coverages. And in his opinion, when you got the five-man front and you're indicating some heat, their cornerbacks have to be pressed up on the guy. Because with a five-man front, the quarterback knows he has to get the ball out of his hands quickly and so that short slant is always going to be there if the cornerback is playing off the receiver. And that did happen yesterday to the Eagles. So um, 
I don't know. Soft coverage and a five-man front probably doesn't go together. And Sean Desai, the new defensive coordinator, is probably going to have to figure that out. Uh, okay, number nine, too many penalties. Too many penalties for a good team. Eagles had 11 penalties yesterday. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's just not being disciplined. Uh, 11 penalties for 80 yards. That, a good team doesn't do that. So they're going to have to buckle that down. Uh, now, with Hurts, um, he found a stride in the third quarter. After a mediocre first half, found a stride in the third quarter. Uh, started hitting some some receivers and a great play by AJ uh, who would weave his way to a 25 yard touchdown there to give the Eagles a 21 to 17 lead. And at the end of the third quarter, Jalen Hurts was 17 for 23 for 230 yards. And again, that rating was way up there at 119. So that really spurred him on, and he continued that in the fourth quarter. But explain this play to me in the fourth quarter, Eagle fans. They're third and 11. They run a toss to Kenneth Gainwell. Now. I, it was stopped cold, first of all. I, I don't know when you have a quarterback like Hertz, when you have dynamic receivers, especially you have a tight end, and that's a money uh, down for him at third and 11. Why would you run a toss there? And because they did that and it was stopped cold, they had to settle for a field goal instead of putting the game away with a touchdown. So that was one thing I did not understand, and also Eagle fans did not understand from what the, the comments I'm getting on social media. Now that, of course, put Washington in position to tie the game with their own TD, and the key play was a, a house scramble in third and four, and a dumb roughing penalty by the aforementioned Terrell Edmonds. I, listen, I know that people complain uh, that when he touched the quarterback, like he's glass, and they're gonna, but, but that's what the league is telling everybody: don't touch the quarterback. And on that play, it wasn't like Hal was stretching his arm out to get extra yards; he was going directly out of bounds. Let him go directly out of bounds. There's no need to hit him. The referees are watching that play, Terrell. You, you can't hit a quarterback in that kind of a position, and it hurt your squad. Uh, okay. Hassan Reddick got his first sack. Hallelujah. Uh, maybe he gets off the schneid with that. Um, and, uh, and also, uh, Sweat had a sack. So the two guys that you count on to get sacks uh, did get a sack, and uh, Nicholas Morrow added three, basically based on how the defensive tackles are playing. Uh, and again, the bottom line is they are 4-0, and they have the Rams and the Jets coming up, and then Miami that got hammered by the Bills, so maybe the Miami mystique is over. What I'm telling you is that the Eagles are in pretty good position here, and uh, we should really uh, rest uh, uh, about the, the problems of this team. They're so good that we pick apart little things, and I know I just picked apart some little things here uh, for the Philadelphia Eagles, but they're you're looking good, and it's a comfortable place to be in if you're an Eagles fan or a Philadelphia sports fan because the next thing we're going to talk about here on the Mike Missnelli podcast, the Phillies in the playoffs. Playoffs are set now. So tomorrow, uh, their opponent will be the Marlins, surprisingly the Marlins. For like the last week and a half, we all thought it was going to be the Arizona Diamondbacks. They fell apart in the end. They barely leaked in. So the Phillies get the Marlins in a three-game series uh, if needed here at uh, Citizens Bank Ballpark. Did I call uh, Lincoln Financial Field Citizens Bank Ballpark earlier? If I did, I apologize. Uh, Citizens Bank Ballpark will host the Phillies and the Marlins. Now, so let's look at this, uh, this series here. The Phillies wound up winning 90 games, which was, uh, if you played the over, the over-under on our Bet Rivers Network, it was 87. So if you played the over, you cashed. Uh, that's the most wins since 2011 and more four more than they won last year uh the phillies lost the season series to the marlins does that mean anything 
Probably not. You know, when, when you play a regular season game against the Marlins, the Marlins are going to be spunky. They've always had success in the regular season against the Phillies for some odd reason. But this Marlin team comes in into this series without two of the really good pitchers. Sandy Alcantara is out, and the 20-year-old phenom Yuri Perez is out. So they're going to be throwing two left-handed starters in the first two games against the Phillies. Uh, left-handers are probably the way to go against the Phillies because you you take uh, Brad Marsh out of, out of uh, the game. Um, so here's what, what the Phillies are going to be up against. Jesus Lazardo and Braxton Garrett. And in the pen, they have Tanner Scott and Stephen Okert and Andrew Nardi and A.J. Puck. So the question for the Phillies in this game is really one minor question. Who starts in left field? Uh, Schwarber is going to be the DH. Bryce Harper is going to be the first baseman. Who starts in left field? Usually it's Marsh, but uh, they're not really sure about him against left-handers right now. He went into a slump against left-handers the last month of the season. So it, it could be Christian Pache in left field, but he's been slumping. He's your right-handed choice. Uh, it, maybe they do play Marsh. I, I don't know what they're going to do. They're going to play Rojas in center field. And then the other alternative, is Weston Wilson, a triple-A guy. He got a great season in triple-A. Had some moments in the big leagues when they called him up. I think that's desperate. So Pache slumping. Marsh terrible against lefties lately. Weston Wilson, a, a minor leaguer who it's desperately going to throw in to a playoff series. I don't know what they're going to do. But uh, excuse me, my brain is already occupied by the next series. I'm not even, I'm not even thinking about this Marlins series at all because I don't think there's any way the Phillies can lose this series. So I am completely focused on whether the Phillies can beat the Atlanta Braves. A couple of weeks ago, I wasn't certain about that. But the Braves have starting pitching problems. And uh, I think the Phillies, uh, I think they're ripe to get beat by the Phillies in the second series, and the Phillies go back to, to the finals uh, in the National League and get to the World Series. Uh, the Braves are a better team than the Phillies on paper, but the starting pitching is going to be key. And the starting picture, frankly, is going to be key for the Phillies. They're going to line up their bulls and hopefully win in two straight games and have a rested rotation with Wheeler and Nola going against the Braves. Well, the Babes have, have Spencer Strider and then question marks. Max Fried's been ailing, and, uh, you know, the third starter has kind of lost his effectiveness. So we'll see when that series comes. But don't worry about the Marlins. Phillies take care of them. All right, let's get to the Sixers now on the Mike Missinelli podcast. Uh, Speaking of brains, uh, my brain is exploding over the Sixers for a couple of reasons. First of all, today was media day, and James Harden, as expected, did not show up. Tomorrow's the first day of training camp for the Sixers. Uh, I doubt that he's going to show up tomorrow. So we have another situation like we had with Ben Simmons, where um, this is going to play out and cause disharmony for the team. So... Um, I've come to the reality that the uh, Sixers have no chance to play in the NBA Finals. And probably they have no chance to play in the Eastern Conference Finals. And, and that's because uh, two circumstances happened here. The Milwaukee Bucks got Damian Lillard. The Boston Celtics got Drew Holiday. Now, here's the thing that we have to get past when we're talking about the NBA. It's all not well and good to have a great starting lineup. When, when you look at the Bucs and the Boston Celtics starting lineup, uh, you go, wow, how can you beat that? You know, the Bucs have 
Damian Lillard and Chris Middleton and Giannis Antetokounmpo and uh, Brooke Lopez. And so, yeah, every position is kind of covered. But you have to have depth in the NBA. Now, maybe not as much in the playoffs, but to get through a season and get in your proper position for the playoffs, you got to have depth. This is Boston's depth right now. Well, they gave up Robert Williams and Brogdon from their depth. Uh, they gave up Grant Williams uh, from their depth. Uh, so, like, who do they really have at this point? Yeah, their starting lineup looks pretty impressive. Jalen Brown and Tatum and Porzingis and Derek White and Drew Holiday. But they gave up their, their, their rim protectors. And Robert Williams is a pretty good rim protector when he's healthy. Uh, they're going to survive with Al Horford in the middle. And Porzingis playing the five. Uh, a, a good deal. And, uh, and and the other guy who barely gets off the bench, who they throw in there uh, every now and then. So uh, I don't know. Uh, there are a lot of people, a lot of NBA people say the Milwaukee Bucks and Boston Celtics really didn't help themselves with this because you need depth and you need something beyond your starting five. But you know what? The fact of the matter is the Sixers, more and more, it's looking like a gap year for the Sixers. Uh, and then I resent that. I got to tell you right now that, for this organization to expect their fans to put up with a gap year where they have no chance to win anything and wait till next year when they get some salaries off the board, including Tobias Harris, now you're going into the Joel Embiid risk area where he may look around and say, this team is far from winning. Why do I want to be here? And he pulls the same thing that most every NBA star pulls, which is to say, get me out of here. They have a very small window right now. The Harden thing is going to mess them up. And so they're not going to contend this year, and they're going to tell their fans, hey, come come to the arena anyway and root us on. It's going to be an exciting season. But is it? Basically, our fans here are smart enough to figure out that they can't contend with this team right now. And so you're, you're asking these people to just come support the team, but no, we're not going to win this year, and we got to wait until next year, and we have to rebuild everything. I don't know that you put these fans in this position. After you've promised them for years now that this process – was going to yield something, and it hasn't. And for the last 10 years, you can look at these missteps this organization's made, and where are they now? And where are they if they take a gap year? It's a shame. It really is because this looked like a city that was going to produce an NBA championship behind Joel Embiid. And Ben Simmons, that fell apart. They were going to produce it with Joel Embiid and James Harden, and that's falling apart right now. So we'll see what happens tomorrow if Harden shows up. Uh, my guess is that he will not show up. All right. Uh, let's get to uh, uh, my final thought here of discussion uh, in the Mike Missinelli podcast. And it has to deal with the Ryder Cup. Um, I love the Ryder Cup. Uh, you know, as a golfer, as a, a viewer of golf, a PGA Tour and, and everything golf, um, I love the Ryder Cup. I love the competition. I love the team competition. The one thing that uh, I miss about golf is the team competition and then the Ryder Cup gives you that feeling and it gives you the, you know, that nationalistic feeling America versus Europe. Now it used to be America versus UK. And then they had to expand the field. And now these European players are playing out of their minds. So it's very formidable. Uh, and the American team has not won on foreign soil going into this Ryder cup for 30 years. And now it's going to be 34 years when we get to the next Ryder cup because the euros dominated the Americans in this Ryder cup. Um, couple of things here. Um, 
you know, you, you look at this and go, why does this happen? And I think I've kind of figured it out. The Euros grow up more competitive than the American golfers. Why? Well, here, this is a theory. Every kid in Europe plays soccer from the time they're small. So they're involved in a team sport right away. Uh, and when you play soccer, you understand the concept of team. Uh, and when these Euros get together, that feeling of team comes back, and they all pull for each other. And they have a grit that the American golfers do not have. Now, I know that the Americans dominated the Euros the whistling straights a few years ago. I, I get that. But the Euros' domination in, in Europe and, and in Rome for this Ryder Cup, with the fan base behind them, also chanting that nationalistic fervor, gets these guys pump, pumped up. It brings their grit out. And uh, so there are a couple things that happen. The Americans come into the Ryder Cup having not played competitive golf in a while. Four weeks or such. Now, I know they went over there and they played practice rounds and the whole bit. But practice rounds aren't the same as being in competition. So I believe they went into there unprepared. You know, the American golfers think they're prepared because they play a practice round. And they go to the range and they're hitting it well. Meanwhile, they're against this juggernaut team that is bonded together that is out to prove something in front of their home fans chanting for them and so they were unprepared and what happened in the first session they got waxed 4-0 now when you lose 4-0 on the first session you're climbing uphill the whole time <laughs> and, and, and so when we look at the first days of competition the it's alternate shot which means you have to be in conjunction with your teammate Alternate shot, you have to be really in sync with them. And Americans who don't have that competitive fire, I don't think understand that competition of alternate shot where they have to pick up their partner. They just don't have that kind of grit. So they fall behind 4-0, and at that point, it was climbing uphill. Now, within that 4-0 start, Scotty Scheffler and Brooks Kepka playing together Two of the top golfers in the world, certainly Scheffler, ranked number one for a really long time, and Kepka, who obviously played on the Live Tour, and it was controversial when they brought him in. This is the second session. Uh, Zach Johnson did not send Kepka out for the first session. And I'm going, okay, why would he not do that? Kepka is one of his better golfers. You chose him for the team despite all this Live thing. Were you trying to prove to the rest of your team who may have been rankled that he went to Live? that he doesn't deserve to play the first session. When you select him on the team, you got to go full board, don't you? Well, anyway, he's not in the first session. They lose. And so now, Scheffler and Kepka get boat raced in this Ryder Cup, nine and seven. In other words, the team that they played is up nine with only seven holes to play. The match is done at hole 11. That's just inexcusable. It's just ridiculous. I don't know how two golfers, the acumen of Brooks Kepka and Scotty Scheffler, can have that little pride to lose 9-7 and get waxed like that. It's not like they're schmoes. How do you lose 9-7? I just don't understand it. All right, let's move on now to something that rankled me. I know golf is a gentleman's game. And there's the big example way back in the day. I don't know, it was 1961 or what, when Jack Nicholas conceded a putt to Tony Jacklin to give the Americans and the, the British team, a tie. 
And Nicholas said afterwards he didn't want to risk Jacqueline missing that putt to be a, a pariah in his home country. Very noble. But it wasn't like the Americans were going to lose anything when he did that. And I know they might not have won this Ryder Cup. But the situation was that Ricky Fowler is playing Tommy Fleetwood. They're on the 17th hole. Fleetwood hits a lag putt to within, I don't know, maybe two and a half, three feet. Now, he's probably going to make that putt. But Ricky Fowler concedes the putt to Tommy Fleetwood. Okay, earlier in the Ryder Cup, maybe you concede it. This concession happened to give the Euros the Ryder Cup. Yes, pick it up. But when he picks it up, they win the Ryder Cup. Now, somewhere along the line, Ricky Fowler has to know that, right? He has to know that if he concedes that putt, it's over completely. And if he lets him putt, while it's going to be maybe unsportsmanlike, if he misses, you still have to go to 18 for the match to be decided. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why he would concede that particular putt. While I understand sportsmanship, why would you concede a putt that would give the Europeans the Ryder Cup? They clinched it with that concession. Now, to say nothing of the fact that maybe Tommy Fleetwood would have liked to have made that putt for the Euros to clinch. Instead, he kind of goes away with a vanilla uh, kind of uh, finale where he didn't actually make the putt. It was conceded and they win the Ryder Cup. Wouldn't have been nicer for, if I'm Tommy Fleetwood, I'd like to plunk that last putt and then I can really celebrate. All right, there's some things about the Ryder Cup I didn't really understand. And one of the things is how the Americans keep losing in uh, uh, foreign soil. When, well, I, and I understand the concept that they set up the course to favor the European team strength and uh, to accentuate the American team's weakness. But I don't understand uh, a couple of things about it, uh, that, that couple of things that Zach Johnson did to line up uh, his, uh, his, his golfers, especially on the final day where they're far behind and they sent out Colin Morikawa second. Man, you've got to get your four best golfers. You send the four best golfers out right away. He sent Scheffler out, right? But he sends Colin Morikawa out and he sends Sam Burns out. Now, Burns played ahead of his uh, uh, his abilities, and, and he won his match. But if I'm lining up my guys, I go, you know, listen, I got to win the first four matches. I got to send out my four bowls, and I'll worry about the other guys down the road. I've got to get back into this contention here uh, for, for this Sunday to account for anything. All right, so that uh, that takes care uh, of the my final thoughts with the Ryder Cup being uh, the Ryder Cup. Uh, let's close it down and uh, thank the people that bet Rivers for – this podcast, bringing this podcast. If you notice, you did not hear producer Darren uh, on the podcast today. Darren is a little under the weather today, so hopefully he'll be back tomorrow. And a reminder for tomorrow that uh, I will be uh, interviewing one Angelo Catelli. That's right. Angelo's going to stop by. He's got a new book out. We're going to talk about that and many other things. I know everybody loved the first time that Angelo and I, uh, and Angelo was a guest here on the Mike Maselli podcast, sponsored by Bet Rivers. So we're going to do a, a, a little sequel with Angelo Catelli coming up tomorrow on tomorrow's podcast uh, in the meantime let's talk about my selections from my bet rivers app i am two and one going into tonight's giants seahawks game my big winner I, I, listen i love to pat myself on the back because i've been on a roll i was nine and oh 
with my selections that I put on the Mike Missinelli podcast and the five selections that the Bet Rivers folks asked me to do. We have a national competition with uh, uh, the, the group of six who do the uh, Bet Rivers podcast all over the country. And I went 5-0 and oh last week to take the lead. Well, uh, I had a mediocre week last week in the national competition with a two and three week. So we'll see where that stacks me uh, in contention with the rest of the guys on our uh, national contest. Um, so uh, two and one uh, tonight with Kentucky being my big play, college play over the weekend. I took the Kentucky Wildcats to take an outright win. They were a one-point favorite in that game, but they're a pretty good team. And now they're getting discovered that they beat Florida. Uh, they have success over Florida, and that's why one of the reasons why I took Kentucky. I have been money uh, in college. Again, Angela Cataldi tomorrow. Uh, we're involved in a book signing together. He has a new book out, and I have my children's book out, The Adventures of Shima the Sheba. And we are both going to be appearing on a Saturday in Collingswood, New Jersey, the world-famous Collingswood Book Festival. And also, Angelo and I are going to have a Q&A at 3 p.m. on Saturday. So if you're in the neighborhood of Collingswood, New Jersey, stop by the Collingswood Book Festival. Uh, uh, he's going to be with his book. I'm going to be with my book. And then later in the afternoon, we are doing a Q&A uh, at 3 p.m. at the Collingswood Book Festival. All right. That'll do it for today. A little post-game Mike Missanelli podcast. We're going to do this after every Eagles game and a lot of activity going on. We had the Eagles today. Uh, we had the Sixers. And we have the Phillies now starting uh, the playoff series against the Marlins. They'll, uh, you know, they'll win two. I, I hate for that to go down to a game three and some, something fluky happens and they lose. I don't think that's going to happen. I think the Phillies are going to win their two games with uh, behind Wheeler and Nola. And then we have to wait a few days until they get to the Atlanta Braves, which is going to be fantastic. All right. Thanks to, to the people at Bet Rivers for producing the show. Thanks for, for watching and listening, everybody. And we'll have another quick podcast tomorrow and then one later in the week as we get into the football weekend and we wrap up that Phillies two-game victory. I am Mike Missanelli for the Bet Rivers podcast. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Mike Missanelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.